0: Hi everybody, this is the second half of our conversation with Nitika Khetan on bail. In the first half of the conversation, we spoke about how criminal complaints are initiated. So if you haven't watched that, feel free to go ahead and watch that first. In this conversation, we talk about what actually happens in bail hearings. The conversation picks up with Nitika explaining the difference between statutory bail and discretionary bail.
1: just to discuss default bail very briefly because this is one concept that I get really like confused maybe about because I was discussing this with Vasu earlier that rarely I have seen people getting default bail because in on practice I've seen so many times people have been in custody for for example six months seven months for normal offenses but default bail was never sought for never granted once so what Mm -hmm. I've understood till now which I might be subject to correction is that if you do not ask for default bail on Till a certain period, then you write away that thing that you don't, you can't get it anymore because you've not. So And the second thing I've seen is what the police does it files a charge sheet, then seeks your custody and then starts filing supplementary charge sheets. So even though, because this whole discussion, then default bail is a right that you've been given, but because there are these other considerations and other perspectives towards bail, a matter of right also gets diluted. So there is obviously something else at play in the head.
2: Completely and exactly on point. Even though you don't necessarily need to make an application to say, you know, my 60 days are up or my 90 days are up and there's no chart sheet that's been filed. Um, unfortunately, in practice, if you're not making that application, it isn't likely that you're going to be released on default bail. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the sort of more pressing thing is exactly as you mentioned, because this is linked purely to the filing of the charge sheet. Um, As long as the investigating agency files some sort of charge sheet before that period is up, your default bail right gets gets extinguished. Um, And yeah, I mean, they can always sort of file supplementary charge sheets, even if that first charge sheet doesn't have everything they want to rely on um, at the trial.
0: So I think this is a a good place to sort of talk about uh the kind of evidence the prosecution or the police actually have to bring, right? Uh, Because you said that, for example, you can file or you can apply for bail at any point, right? Um, But the charge sheet comes much later, right? So how, if if prior to the charge sheet, on what basis am I really applying for bail? Because I don't have access to anything that the police is accusing me of, right? And in the second case, where supplemental charge sheets are continually being filed, Right. How do I really um, exercise my right to bail meaningfully in that kind of a situation?
2: Completely. And here again, the main problem we run into is precisely this. Till the charge sheet is filed, you don't actually have a right to see the material that the investigating agency has on you. So you can see the FIR, sure, but the FIR is again, definitionally, only the first information, right? But there is nothing that says that the FIR has to have Um, all of the material against you. It's only the thing that triggers investigation. So presumably most of the material against you is something that's obviously only going to be corrected after. Um, In most sort of cases, you ask the court for permission to be able to see the reply to your bail application that the investigating agency has filed. The court grants you a copy and at least that way you get to see what are the allegations that have been leveled against you. But yeah, that's not a matter of right. And so depending on the kinds of cases, we've seen multiple instances of the state either wanting to file the reply in a sealed cover, or the state's just not wanting to give it to you. Um, usually right. you sort of like rely on very basic principles to ask for a copy. Because if the state wants to deprive you of your liberty, you should at least have a chance to respond to why they want to deprive you of your liberty. But precisely because you don't have a right, you do unfortunately have to sort of like fight with your hands behind your back um, before the chat sheet is filed.
0: Yeah, I think one... Right. And dis- I think this was- Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Vishal. Yeah. yeah sorry. No,
1: go for it was this thing that one general disclaimer people should have is that if the state really wants to trouble you, like if they really decide you're going to trouble you, they can really do it. I think people don't realize the amount of power they can really have on you and... Slow, because every little thing is by the end of in their hands. So if you really get caught up in the web of uh, investigation and the cops don't like you for, or if you've really committed the crime or if they don't like you just in general, they can really trouble you till the end. Like they can really object. But to- okay, I think
0: this is, a, this is a sort of good segue to sort yeah. of uh, start talking about judges, right? Because what you're saying here is that the law itself doesn't give you a right to see the information uh, that's that's being used against you. Right. And you have to either ask for a judge uh, and on the sort of basis of principles of natural justice kind of a thing, uh, get a a copy of that. But there's no obligation on the state to provide that to you. So I think this is a sort of good segue into what the role of the judge or the kind of power a judge has in a bail hearing. And if you could just sort of walk us through what actually goes on um, once you actually start seeking bail before a judge and what the judge really considers while granting bail.
2: For sure. Um, so here again, I am severely limited in that I've only ever litigated in Delhi, um, and so the situation in terms of you know how often you get these replies to the bail applications or not is going to be very very local. Um, but yeah, at least broadly from sort of whatever limited experience I've had here, you will. Oh, sorry you will end up being given a copy of the reply to that bail application, but in cases that are slightly more sensitive, um, you won't. And here before actually we even get to the role of a judge at the time of deciding your bail application, the magistrate has all the power in the world to refuse the police's request to remand you to further police custody or judicial custody. And the moment they do that, you don't have to apply to bail because if there's no order remanding you to further custody. You're free to go. There again, unfortunately, despite dozens of judgments that categorically state that the decision to remand you to custody has cannot be a mechanical decision. Has to be based on looking at the case diary. Or case diary really looking at whether. Um, your further custody is required for interrogation, whether that interrogation can be done effectively without you needing to be in custody. Um, we also have sort of enough collective experiences, litigators and enough reflections of this and judgments that remand more often than not does happen mechanically. Um, as for bail, because we don't have a statute that Sort of categorically sets out parameters for bail as such. We have tons of judgments that provide a fairly long list of factors that a court could consider at the time of granting bail. So the easiest sort of factors to start with, or the triple test or the tripod test, um, as it's called, is whether you're going, whether there's a flight risk, whether you're going to abscond whether you're going to tamper with the evidence or whether you're going to influence witnesses. The same Supreme Court judgments that talk about the triple test, however, also recognize a fourth factor, which is the gravity of the offense alleged against you and what your alleged role in that offense is. And then we also have plenty of judgments that say you can take into account the past criminal antecedents of the accused, um, the likelihood that they will commit this offense again, And the list goes on. Broadly.
0: Yeah, I mean, so it seems to me that the first three factors that you mentioned, right? The risk, um, whether or not um, they will tamper with the witnesses, right? These are all factors that seem logical when granting bail because you obviously want an independent investigation. Um, But I'm just wondering the question of gravity of an offense, right? We seem to keep coming back to this. Um, in the classification under the IPC, CRPC, and now when it, the judge is actually granting bail, right? Because logically, if, if there's a presumption of innocence, then it shouldn't matter whether I'm accused of uh, multiple murder or if I'm accused of simple petty theft, right? Um, also adding to that, so I'm sure that, I'm sure that the judgment's on this point, but yeah, Rishabh? So,
1: so I was saying that even adding to this point of gravity of offense then because if the presumption is of innocence that all of us have been taught, I don't know for how many years now, then even a facie opinion on if it has been committed by you and what's your role, then that is a bit, there's a friction here, right? Because now you are trying to see that I will also look at a facie opinion, but I also have this principle of that you are innocent until you're proven guilty. So they, they don't really set well with each other, but they still exist with each other. So I think that's a huge problem here.
2: Absolutely. And here's the additional problem that creeps in, right? At the stage of deciding a bail application, you don't want a court to delve too much into, you know, is there material to show that this offense is made out against the accused or not? Because that's something that then prejudices the trial, right? Regardless of what conclusion you reach. But at the same time, you cannot, and therefore you have a bunch of judgments that say, you know, courts are not to get into a detailed examination of merits at the stage of bail. But at the same time, if gravity of offense is something you have to look at while giving someone bail, you have to at least enter into the merits a little bit, exactly. right? right? And how much of that you go into versus not is, again, something that exists in the judge's discussion. I've been in bail hearings where there has been like, sort of interminable WhatsApp chats being filed by the accused person and being filed by the complainant. Because even though bail is strictly speaking between the state and me, um, at least in Delhi complainants sort of, um, it's hard to find a proceeding where the complainant is sort of denied locus entirely. Yeah, Chandigar also. Um, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And in those situations, you are basically going on for days about like complainants, WhatsApp chats show X, Y, Z accused persons, WhatsApp chats show ABC. Therefore, is it likely that the accused person did this or not? Yeah. And even though these things are not being captured in these precise words in the order and the order, you know, we'll still repeat the line of at stage of bail, I must not go into detailed merits, da, da, da. that's yeah. still what's actually happened yeah. during the course of that bail hearing. Yeah, correct. Um, And precisely on the point of presumption of innocence, um, the added problem becomes when we start talking about special laws. And in fact, before we even get into special laws, under the Indian Penal Code itself, if you've been accused of an offense that is punishable with life or death, the magistrate does not have the power to release you on bail if she thinks that there are reasonable grounds for believing that you've committed that offense. And now these restrictions might not apply to the sessions or the high court, but if your basic ordinary law itself has this restriction built in, um, when we come to special laws like the Narcotic Drugs and Psychotropic Substances Act or the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, the restrictions on bail then are even greater than the ones that we find in the IPC in relation to offenses punishable with life and death. And those have so far all been held to be constitutional, but of course, gravely militate against the presumption of innocence.
1: Yeah, I think one important word you mentioned. I think we were discussing is discretion, right? Because earlier we were discussing that there is no statute that really provides you how bail is to be granted. Then we discussed there are just multiple judgments that get give you factors, and in the end, it's basically the word that keyword that is playing here is discretion. So at least in Chandigarh or like in Punjab I know what I see is that usually bail for grave offenses is not granted by session court because they feel that it's not worth the risk for them. Like they feel if you want to really get a bail, just get it from the high court. And we won't take the risk of looking at the evidence. And then because they fear more for the fact that somebody will question them, how can you give a bail in this grave offense? So then... I think discretion is what really is at play here. And it just ends up being what the judge is really thinking. And they will only think what they have to think once they know the merits of the case, then this whole system go- gets on his, it gets completely confused about what's happening.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think we also have to be cognizant of the kind of like bravery it takes even as a judge to stick your neck out a little bit. Right. Okay. Um, And especially in the last couple of years, I mean, we've seen very extreme examples of what can happen when you're giving orders that the ruling dispensation doesn't favour. But even outside of those extreme cases, right? um, We are still individuals against two different organs of the state. Um, And so, what it takes for a judge to deny, you know, a one-day extension of remand that the investigating agency asks um, is not something that you will easily see.
0: Right. And I mean, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the sort of rationale behind um, not granting magistrates power to, to grant bail immediately, right, for offenses of life or death, um, it seems to me that, and this also ties into the fact of the question of sort of judicial independence, is that you assume that the stakes are significantly higher for somebody in the lower judiciary, and you assume that high court and supreme court judges are, are much better insulated from that kind of pressure, right? Um, but for the majority of people, right, if you if you don't have access to a high court, right, uh, could you just walk us through sort of how long it would take and roughly maybe a ballpark figure in Delhi at least how much it would cost somebody to go through those multiple hearings to actually end up at a high court um, to to hear uh, to get a to get a bail hearing.
2: Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, ideally, the advice is always to start by applying for bail before a magistrate. If you're rejected there to then move up to the sessions court and only if you're also rejected there to go up to the high court. That, at least based on my limited experience in Delhi, is still going to take you a few weeks. Because even though courts recognize that it's bail and want to give you short dates, first you have to get your bail application listed. Then if the state hasn't come with a status report on the very first day, the judge is going to grant the state a few days to come back with a status report. Arguments will happen depending on how extensive those arguments are. A few more days get spent. And then the um, sort of case is reserved for orders. Again, ideally these orders, at least in bail should be coming quickly, but we've seen sort of cases where that's taken a while. Um, One sort of like, added thing outside of this restriction on magistrates power to grant bail in cases punishable with life imprisonment or death is that there are also some judgments where they say that cases that are triable only by sessions courts are cases where magistrates should be you know slightly sort of more wary of granting you bail and in those cases you might decide to straight away file before sessions um then if you do have the means to go to the high court you will again first file before the high court, notice will be issued a few more days for the state to grant, um, uh, to file its reply, then arguments, then again, the order is reserved. And then if you really want to sort of take it all the way up, um, you file before the Supreme Court. Another relevant factor here, and this I sort of say based on the experience of um, senior advocates who observed this process for like two, three decades, is that at least in Delhi, several of them have voiced that they've seen a creeping factor that's gained more relevance in the grant of bail um, as time spent in custody. So sometimes sort of knowing the judges are going to look at your bail application a certain way once you file after you've already spent a couple of weeks becomes an additional consideration in lawyers' minds. yeah, so I think at best this process of everything together would still be a month or two, Um, and that's again a best case scenario.
1: And that's actually a bit fast, so because of what I've experienced. That's
2: assuming a super fast process. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Between Delhi and Chandigarh, Delhi usually has a lim- like a limited criminal roster. Like it's not as heavy a board as compared to. Other. So, for example, my limited experience of Punjab and wherever days have been mentioned, you make it weeks. So it takes a few weeks okay. for the state say to file a reply, it takes a few weeks for your matter to get listed. And then because there are so many people who want to bail, it's not that they don't want to give you, but that's just the amount of time it takes for things to really move. Right. And then that effectively becomes two or three months minimum. And I think even in Chandigarh, now this idea is, if you've spent one third of the time or if a charge sheet has been presented, then like, okay, let's just give you bail because you've spent enough time. So then the consideration completely becomes, Irrelevant. It's just how much time you spend. So then the discussion is uh, how much, time times an- and the undero. So the exactly. thing was uh, like this.
0: Yeah. So I think we're sort of also running out of time. So I think this is a sort of a good way to uh, segue into the last sort of thing that we wanted to talk about, which is where where the state of bail law really leaves us today, right? Um, because so a couple of points that I have in mind is one. Um, and so this is sort of picking up from what Rishab just said. The judge himself knows um, that the person has spent X amount of time in jail, right? So it seems to me that not only as we as citizens are looking at bail as sort of definitive um, de- determinations of punishment or guilt, but it also seems like the judges in their own head have now come to the acceptance that trial is so far away that Really, bail is uh, bail is really going to determine punishment or non-punishment, right? So it seems to me a system characterized uh, by by the centrality of bail, really. And then when I couple that with the vast uncertainty for most citizens as to the time, the costs, and the outcome, right? And then I couple that with uh, the, the sort of large amounts of discretion both the judge has and the state has right? In various situations, Um, whether it's filing supplemental charge sheets or refusing um, the accused a a copy of the the bail reply, right? So it seems to me that uh, we're sort of in a situation where uh, nothing really has any amount of certainty. um, And and that's an odd state for a sort of legal regime to be
2: in. Completely. And I think precisely the discretion that exists with bail law is what leads to this uncertainty. Um, As for bail being seen as a punitive measure, there are for instance, cases where um, a Delhi High Court order from a few months ago recorded a submission that the investigating agency had made in its reply, where one of the grounds that the investigating agency had mentioned to deny bail to the accused was saying that they wanted to send a message to society. Um, In that particular case, the high court, of course, came down heavily on that and said bail is not punitive and it's not about sending a message to society. Um, But even if these things are never explicitly recorded this way in orders, if we generally survey bail jurisprudence in the... Uh, jail book, uh, sorry, bail yeah. jurisprudence in the country, it's hard to walk away without a sense of you know, the precise length of trials influencing multiple actors in the system towards viewing bail precisely as a punitive deterrent and not as what it's meant to be, Right, making sure you show up for trial and making sure the trial is fair. Um, and yeah, that is a grave infraction of your presumption to innocence, but it's hard to see exactly where one would start to begin to fix this.
1: Yeah. And, uh, another, this thing, so it just discussing some recent cases, because now once we start discussing discretion, we start seeing how discretion plays a different role in different landmark cases. For example, this is a cliche example still, but like when Arnam Goswami got his bail, it was considered a landmark judgment of like how procedures can be looked past and how under the jurisdiction courts can do so many things and they can really give you bail. But that anybody who really practices, uh, who is just not really in practice, who just been in courts for like one year, they know that judgment, no matter how well written is actually a farce. Because you can never go to straight up to a high court and say, I want a bail. They will throw you out. They will embarrass you. They will ridicule you. And that will be the end of your day. And you'll go back thinking, you know, what, what happened to my constitutional arguments? But nobody really cares until unless you are, maybe you have enough social capital to throw the book saying, you know, this is the book, what the book says. I think that's a very weird part for even a person who's in jail. Like what he perceives as justice is not really justice anymore. It's just, it's just confusion about like Vaso was saying. It's very uncertain. I think
0: that's a huge problem.
2: Yes.
0: Oh,
2: right. No, sorry, Nitika. Oh no, no. I was just gonna say that sort of not just instances where there has been discussion over from the accused perspective whether they've gotten bail quickly or they haven't gotten bail quickly. We also have to keep in mind cases from the complainant side, right? So a few years ago, when in one of the Onao rape cases, the accused were released on bail despite the fact that there were allegations that they were trying to influence the trial adversely that they had been absconding since the registration of the FIR. And unfortunately, we the complainant was basically wanted to death. Um, and I think these high profile cases only give us glimpses of what is actually a deeper rot that you see in almost every bail case you adjudicate, whether it's high profile, low profile, politically sensitive, not politically sensitive. Um, and yeah, again, I think the task of even beginning to think of how you would fix this seems momentous, but length of trial and the power to arrest are two places to start for sure.
0: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, when you when you brought out the Now example, I think what springs to mind really is that when you have a system that's sort of fundamentally based on um, discretion and uncertainty, that's always going to, Uh, at some level privilege those people with access to resources and access to a certain amount of power, right? Um, Because systems that are based on discretion, systems that have a large amount of uncertainty are fundamentally manipulable, right? So when when people in power can manipulate those systems, then we sort of see a a trend of outcomes that uh, are not sort of principled and not what we expect from a legal system, right? And that's what really undermines the legitimacy of the entire process. Um, so yeah, I think that's all I have for today. If any of you all have any closing thoughts, then uh, uh, feel free to chip in.
2: No, I think this is it.
1: All right, guys, thank you for listening. This was our first episode with Nikita on bales. And one of my key takeaways from this conversation is that a bail depends more on the discretion than on the statue. And this discretion is not a blanket discretion. It is also guided by certain other factors that are involved. And what I'm thinking also is that as you move up the hierarchy of courts, there is more wiggle room with these judges. So for example, a, se- a sessions judge court will be lesser uh, prone to give you bail than compared to a high court judge or a Supreme Court judge will actually give you a bail if not the high court judge. So, there's a, so there is basically the hierarchy works in this system quite clear- clearly.
0: And I think in addition to that, one really useful way to take discretion or to take the importance of bail away is to start looking more seriously at criminal justice reform and understanding the process that trials take and the problems with that. I think until we do that, bails are going to be central to our criminal justice process and we're going to be happy or unhappy with bail outcomes based on which side of the political spectrum we sit on. So with that, I think thanks so much for watching. We hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, we hope to see you again.